And at the end of the day, you got to decide if you're not not going to do this because you think it's the rational investment strategy. Why don't you do this because it's good for the world and there's a billion people that have no choice or have no have no hope otherwise, and there's five billion people that will benefit by the support of Bitcoin as an instrument for economic empowerment. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys at swanbitcoin.com. I'm your host, Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan. Swan Signal pairs up great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO of Quill Intelligence, and Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategy, join us. Glad you found your way here. Enjoy. All right, everyone, welcome back to Swan Signal Live. This, of course, is a production of Swan Bitcoin, the safest way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys at swanbitcoin.com. Swan Signal Live is a weekly show. We pair up great guests for compelling discussions about economics and Bitcoin. I'm your host, Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan. We have a monster of a show for you today. I've been excited about this one ever since we scheduled it. Um, with Daniel DiMartino Booth and Michael Saylor. But before we dive in, a exciting announcement to share with you uh, about Swan Bitcoin. Daily buys are up and running. We've been talking about it for a month or so now. We've been signing people up for the beta program at swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys. You can still jump in on that. Uh, the team is now stacking daily uh, and we have been testing it. We are rolling it out slowly to all of the uh, beta group. Uh, so that's super exciting. Uh, you know, automatic recurring buys, uh, our service, dollar cost averaging is the safest way to accumulate Bitcoin. You can stabilize your cost basis over time. Just set it and forget it. There's no distractions at Swan from altcoins. Uh, we are laser focused on helping you accumulate Bitcoin and educating you about what's going on here, for example, through this very show. So let's dive in to the show now. Uh, we have the amazing Danielle DiMartino Booth with us. She's a former Fed insider. She was a right-hand analyst to Dallas Fed President Richard Fisher during the 2008 financial crisis. Um, and through that experience, she came to uh, call out the monetary malpract malpractice of the Fed uh, in her book, Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is, ba is bad. <laughs> Just straight up says it right there. Um, she now runs her own research firm, Quill Intelligence. Danielle, really appreciate taking the time today. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And we have, of course, Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategy, a publicly traded enterprise business intelligence company. Michael burst onto the Bitcoin scene over the past few months when he put MicroStrategy onto a Bitcoin standard by converting nearly all of the company treasury to Bitcoin, $450 million worth over the past few months. Michael, welcome to Swan Signal Live. Thanks, Brady. All right. So, yeah, as I just stated there in the introduction, Michael is obviously a Bitcoin bull. Um, and this being a show focused on macro and Bitcoin, I'd like to just start by getting your thoughts on Bitcoin, Danielle, before we jump in to focusing on your expertise and discussing macroeconomics and monetary policy. Uh, there's obviously so much that we agree on on those two topics. Uh, and we'll unpack those, uh, you know, those two topics here on the show. Um, so let's just start with getting your general view on Bitcoin. And I was wondering if your thoughts have evolved at all 
in light of large investors like Paul Tudor Jones, Raul Powell, buying Bitcoin, uh, and companies like MicroStrategy, and, and now Square, we recently found out, is choosing to hold it as a corporate reserve asset. Well, clearly, there's about $7 trillion. Excuse me, I'm former central banker. I only think in trillions. There's about <laughs> billion billion right now on corporate balance sheets um, held as cash and cash equivalent. So you've, you've now got a fairly new line item that says Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, I had a lengthy interview recently with a fellow by the name of Jeff Booth. And he has he has looked at deflation through the prism of technology and where that's going to take the global economy in the next several generations. And it was very impactful in that we spoke about the end game, which everybody talks about. Everybody talks about what's going to happen if and when we go from, let's say, the, after the next three trillion, we tack on from 30 to 60 trillion dollars of U.S. debt. Where does that take us? And the, the, the standard answer is, especially inside the macroeconomic community, which I'm not trying to endorse in any way, shape or form, but there's always some happy kumbaya debt jubilee ending to where all of the major sovereigns get together in a room, presumably including the United States and China, and they agree to expunge all sovereign debts, just wipe the decks clean. I've never really bought into the simplicity of that, given that there has been saber rattling going on in the background and in, to an increasing extent as China has become larger on the world stage and because and has become technologically dominant. We know that they're winning in the AI game. We know that they're winning when it comes to the number of patents that they're putting out. We know that they've already got a third of the telecommunications equipment on planet Earth. So China is definitely marching towards trying to become the economic superpower. We know, however, that the yuan is not an, an accepted medium of exchange as of yet still south of 2% globally. So the, the Jeff's main premise is that rather than segue from a currency war to a trade war, that's where we are right now uh, in, in the cycle of cycles, but rather from going from currency to trade to hot war, which is how historically, since the Romans existed, how currency, reserve currencies have exchanged hands. And that is when blood falls. Uh, and rather than doing that, Jeff suggested that that Bitcoin could, could rise up as a peaceful alternative to there being an actual altercation between the United States and China, one group of allies versus another group of allies, China, Iran, um, Russia, Saudi Arabia, versus the United States and the rest of the world. So it, it would require, I, I think, a lot of standing down. And But I do see that as being a potential avenue going forward because much to the dismay of, of gold bugs, I've never seen the practicality of switching back to the gold standard. So uh, with that, I will say that I used to be much more skeptical than I am. Uh, I understand that economically speaking, if you're talking about productive capacity, that when quantum comes along, the math completely shifts uh, in terms of the economics of Bitcoin. And that can also be, uh, a, you know, a pioneering revolutionary step ahead. So I am much less skeptical today than I was, say, six months ago, but I'm not letting go of my gold just yet. Excellent. Uh, really appreciate your take on that, Michael. Uh, any reaction to Danielle's take there? There's a lot to unpack. We have the uh, idea of 
China perhaps um, you know competing, trying to compete against the dollar uh, for a global reserve currency status. Of course, we heard about Iran changing their oil contracts uh, to being denominated on yuan from the U.S. dollar. That was interesting news. Um, but also, you know, Danielle mentions quantum there. I'm wondering if during your research, um, your extensive dive into Bitcoin before you made this move, uh, that you, uh, you know, researched that idea uh, as a potential catalyst for, uh, you know, a breach of Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network. Um, well, I guess I, th I think that all currencies are collapsing right now. And... Um, and uh, as every government's printing money everywhere in the world, that, that means there's, um, there's a stampede of value out of currency into something else. So, so I think when you print more money, when you inflate the currencies or inflate the monetary supply, it's the equivalent of like sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Uh, I'm an astronautical engineer. And so this concept called adiabatic lapse and what it means is that um, as, as the pressure drops away, the, uh, the energy drops out of the system. So every 1,000 feet you go up, the temperature drops by 3 degrees. And if you go up 50,000 feet, the temperature drops by 150 degrees versus sea level, which means that if I take you up high enough in the atmosphere, I simultaneously uh, starve you of oxygen and freeze you to death. And, of course, that's why you don't jump out of a plane at 50,000 feet. Um, all the currencies are doing that, right? The governments are basically inflating them up. It's like taking everybody up 50,000 feet. So they're, they're freezing and they're choking to death. And so now in that stampede, everybody's chasing after something else with some tangible value. And, you know, one idea is gold and the other idea is big tech. And I, I think gold is defective and I, you know, I spent 45 minutes explaining why on Peter McCormick's podcast. Yeah. Fundamentally, the reason gold is defective is because it's a commodity. And if you're buying gold as a store of value, you're, you're assuming that human beings will be stupid and won't figure out how to produce anymore. And that's been a bad bet in the history of the world to assume that people can't produce more of something they want. In fact, they seem to produce more of everything they want. There's nothing in the history of the world that we wanted that we couldn't produce more of uh, oil real estate, whatever. So I don't think commodities work and um, we can delve into in a bit, but, but I actually think that's not the crowded trade. I think that everybody's stampeding into NASDAQ stocks and big tech, right? So they're, they're charging toward Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, you know, Microsoft, because they think that those are stores of value. Not, not because they're more bullish on Apple, right? The time to be bullish on Apple was a decade ago or Google Buy Facebook stock when it was 12 bucks a share when social networks were first hitting. The idea that Facebook is a great store of value at $280 a share or whatever the number is right now, is it's an, a little bit late. But the fact of the matter is people are so desperate to avoid getting froze to death, right, in this currency collapse that, that they're chasing toward grasping at anything. And right now their best idea, I think, is big tech. So that's that's what I think. So, Danielle, the Fed has printed 22 percent of all U.S. dollars that have existed uh, to date this year. Uh, obviously, we are just way too far down this path to turn back now. Um, you know, that was the case probably a long time ago. Uh, so we're in a, a world of monetary socialism now. And, 
I'm wondering, you know, are we finally now at the points, um, you know, Austrian economists uh, and, and Fed critics have been, you know, predicting the, the demise of the dollar and, and the results and, and whatever will, the outcome will be for quite a long time. Are we finally at that point now where the Fed loses control of the dollar? And as Michael's saying, uh, you know, are we in a currency collapse, in your opinion? I wouldn't say that we were in a currency collapse in real time. Uh, the, the the dollar has not yet been pushed. It's the worst cliche I could use in, in response to that question. But uh, but we haven't gone far enough in the process. And part of it is because the capital markets are still wide open and there is still enough confidence in central bankers to keep this ruse alive, to, to keep the narrative alive. And a lot of investors are depending on doing just that. If that wasn't the case, we wouldn't have come into the year with about 78% of corporate debt to US GDP. And now we're going to exit the year. I just ran the math at close to 95% of of corporate non-financial debt to GDP. The end result of this is highly destructive and not just highly destructive for investors, but it's highly destructive on a societal level because when you pile on $2 trillion of debt onto corporate America's balance sheet that was overladen to begin with, what you end up with in the event that the that, that the stimulus is not able to produce what we call escape velocity for macroeconomic growth, what you end up with is a lot of companies that are way over leveraged that don't have very high recovery values. And that is why sometimes when we see such and such retail chain uh, filed for chapter 11 and they're closing all their stores. And what that means is rather than go through a restructuring in which a part of the company is retained, you end up having the entire entity destroyed because the Fed has managed to give so many walking wounded, so many zombies, one in five U.S. corporations. Fed policy has managed to give them lifelines such that they can, in the case of American Airlines, they can they can float a couple billion dollars of debt based on their frequent flyer program. You can collateralize anything for heaven's sake. But when when the time comes, therefore, for the inevitable, and they are inevitable, the Fed can postpone insolvency. It cannot indefinitely. It cannot forestall insolvencies indefinitely. It can buy companies time, but that's it. But my point is the time that is purchased puts more corporate, uh, more debt on corporate America's balance sheets such that when the time comes to file, you end up with liquidations. Many more people put out of work than would have needed to have been the case had companies not been walking wounded and they restructured when there was still value left to be carved out of the company. So Brady, I, I have a take on this, if I could. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, abs- I don't think we're going to see a currency collapse. I wouldn't say that. I just think the currencies are all just going to get weaker. They're just sliding. And I mean, a reasonable expectation is the monetary supply expands by more than 10% a year for the next three years. Instead of, I think Saifedean says in his book, he says 7% a year for a decade. So I'm, I'm guessing got more than more than 7%. So let's just say 10 10 to 15% a year for the next three or four years. And I think that probably happens everywhere in the world. And, uh, you know, every government's going to sort through their issues and there's going to be tons of complicated microeconomic developments of which I, I don't think any of us can divine exactly how they'll turn out. All, I think all we know is that rational investors with hundreds of trillions of dollars of money 
are looking at this saying, the only way I can hold bonds is if I think interest rates go negative. If they're not going negative, then buying a 30-year bond is like me giving you everything that I own waiting to the end of my life and you give back a third of it to my heirs after I'm dead. So that that makes no sense, right, <laughs> to buy a bond or a sovereign bond. And uh, it's hard to buy real estate because half of it's impaired and no one can figure out whether, half, you know, our the movie theater is ever going to be valuable again. It's, it's a very complicated situation <laughs> and scary situation. If you have a nice house, I recommend you keep it, right? If you had extra cash and you wanted to buy a beautiful house, this is a good time to buy it. So if there's something that you love, that you're passionate about, then you probably ought to buy it. And uh, otherwise, you've got this extra, extra monetary energy. It's hard to find debt. And so now you're down to precious metals or stocks. And the Fed and, and the central bankers have crowded everybody out of every trade. Like literally, they've, the reason the stock market's going up and the gold is going up is because they bought up everything in the middle. So you either have to have conviction on gold, and, and there are people that have it, or, or, I mean, you've got a billion people on the planet that think that Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Google are, you know, walk on water, right? And, and you can't blame them. I mean, they, they're, the, they're the biggest success stories of a decade. So I, I think really what's going on right now is that the store of value for a billion people or, or however many has become technology stocks. And uh, that, just, that just means that as the Fed prints more money, you you know, there's going to be a little tug of war. And I think over the near term, uh, people will probably buy equities and stocks because it's easy to do so and they understand them. And uh, I think over the long term, this is a time horizon thing, right? If you're looking out over the next decade, maybe five to 10 years, then yeah, buying technology is not a bad idea. Their, their fixtures are not going away. If you're looking out between 10 and 100 years, then you start to say, well, technology companies, they've got CEOs and central operations and competitors, and they've got countries that they've got to deal with, and they've got trade and regulatory issues, and a lot of complications and moving parts. They have to do a lot, a lot of things every year to be a store of value. Apple's got to keep shipping upgrades to the iPhone, like the one they're doing today, and then the Apple Watch. And everybody's going to have an opinion about whether the new iOS or the new iPhone or the new Apple Watch was a good thing or a bad thing and how the Chinese feel about it and how we're going to deal with it, et cetera. Lots of complications. So your alternative, of course, to gold or to big tech is Bitcoin. And Bitcoin doesn't have complications. There's no CEO to disagree with. There's no board of directors. There's no, there's no one country. There's no central headquarters. It doesn't have to keep shipping new versions of itself. It is, it, as it sits right now, the current functionality of Bitcoin is to store all the world's money forever in a fair and equitable fashion. And that's enough. I mean, that's, that's what we want, right? So I feel that right now you've got a bunch of people, they all agree on one thing. Everybody agrees currency is getting weaker and we have to, we have to run to a store of value. They all disagree about whether the store of value is gold, or big tech or Bitcoin. But if I think if people think about it a bit, I think they'll conclude that the technology is a crowded trade, it's run its course. And if you wanted to make a lot of money in it, you probably should have bought all those things in 2010, 11 or 12. 
And right now, right now they've got as many complications as they have benefits as a store of value. And I think with regard to gold, as I said before, it peaked in the 19th century. In 95 cities, 95% of the cities in the world, they seized it in the 20th, 20th century. And if they don't seize it, then the gold miners will just make more and they're your enemy. So I, I can't see going back to a 19th century idea as a 21st century solution is very progressive. And that only leaves one choice, which is Bitcoin, which, which is a, a pretty good 21st century solution as a store of value. So I don't know what will happen in the next week or month. And I don't know what companies will succeed or fail. And I can't tell you what every country is going to do and, and whether or not you should short the dollar, or go long the dollar versus the yen or the yuan or the whatever. And there are a lot of guys in the macro industry that care a lot about it and make a lot of money on it. All I can say is it seems pretty obvious to me that if your time horizon is 10 years or more, the store of value with the most promise in the 21st century with the least complications to it is Bitcoin. All right, Danielle, uh, I saw you react to the comments about real estate. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on real estate, both corporate and residential. Uh, so, I mean, if there's anything, it, there, there's something that is very disingenuous about saying that the coronavirus caused all of the issues that are currently in, in the economy. The coronavirus didn't cause corporate America to be over leveraged. The coronavirus didn't cause what we're finding out to be equity cushions on commercial mortgage-backed securities to be so thin. All of this occurred in advance of. And in addition to that, what the coronavirus did change, however, was where Americans, where people want to live. People are looking to move out of, into the suburbs, into the exurbs. You used to have a millennial generation that was like, I'm hip. I'm spending my money on experiences, on traveling. I want to live in urban centers. I want to live close to everything. I don't want the life of my parents. I'm going to shun that. And you had yesterday alone, there was a story on Bloomberg about three luxury um, retirement community buildings that are going up in Manhattan, ready to open because the baby boomers were going to come in from the exurbs. They were going to come in from the suburbs and also want to be closer to their children and want to be close to hospitals. That's all gone away. So coming into 2020, there were two kind of bulletproof sectors in commercial real estate. They were office and multifamily, urban center office, central business di district office, and multifamily high rise downtown. That math has been turned on its head. Retail has been a train wreck, a long moving train wreck for a long time. Lodging was a surprise. Obviously, that is, again, directly related to the coronavirus. But what we're finding out is that the debt that was taken out on some of this real estate was just off the Richter scale. And now it's coming back to haunt the developers. You're seeing jingle mail, which is something that we referred to during the subprime housing crisis. But you're seeing people get up and walk away from portfolios. You're seeing people abandon hotels outright. They do the math. They say the debt against it is never going to be worth. I'm, I'm not going to spend another penny servicing it. And away they go. So this will still be a process that takes some time to to play out. Unfortunately, we're seeing what we saw in the consumer price index uh, this morning that was released. We're seeing rental inflation come down. 
And that is going to scare the Federal Reserve even more than anything because it's the stickiest form of inflation. We're seeing that act as a drag on the CPI. It's going to play out the same way in the core PCE that the Fed follows. In other words, the Fed's going to have even more license to continue printing in the background because it's going to be afraid of, of the boogeyman of deflation. So, but right now, commercial real estate is one of the few areas of the entire asset class universe, right? Because the Fed is backstopping stocks. The Fed is backstopping bonds, corporate bonds. They're not backstopping anything but federally backed multifamily loans. So it's one of the few places where investors have found, wow, there's price discovery here. And what, you know, my reaction came from the fact that Michael was talking about not knowing what the value is. And we're in that price discovery process right now. And it's not pretty. And we're going to find out what it looks like on the other end. But it is at least one place that, you know, because foreign investors are pretty much gone. There, there's been a lot of, of geopolitical tensions that have been driven up because of the coronavirus. So you're not going to have this flood of foreign investors coming in to save the day, as we've seen in past cycles. So again, it's it, I, I, the reason I'm so excited and animated and passionate is because when you have PTSD from working inside the Fed for so long, there are very few asset classes where you get to actually see true price discoveries where buyers and sellers come together and figure out this thing called price without any interference by the Fed. That's what we're seeing in commercial real estate. What we're seeing in residential real estate, I'll sum up for you in four different factors. There's this exodus to the suburbs and the, and the exurbs. That's the one and only fundamental factor. FHA lending has gone bananas. You, you only need a three and a half percent down payment. And we, we've got Fannie and Freddie doing cash out refinancings at about a $50 billion cash out run rate per quarter. That's a lot of money going into the hands of people who built up over $30 trillion of home equity. And on top of that, we're, uh, Fannie and Freddie are using, they've got 80% of, of, of plain vanilla uh, refinancing. They've got 90% of cash out refinancing volumes. They're using something called an automated appraisal waiver so that you don't actually have to you know, see the house, make sure that the value is there. They're just pushing it through the system and putting cash out the back door. So very much a, a, a very much a, a government-led housing boom in addition to the fact that there's that one fundamental factor of people truly wanting to get out of of the city so again real real estate is it's going to get interesting yeah yeah and daniel you know michael daniel's there talking about you know <laughs> true a real price discovery uh you know this idea uh you know that we have in capitalism where you know you have a a price uh for something that actually communicates to the producer and the consumer the value of something uh you know and and obviously prices are very important uh when they become manipulated uh you know we have a bad outcomes uh and we'll talk in a minute about zombie com corporations for instance and and uh you know all kinds of bad outcomes uh, and it's not it's not capitalism it's monetary socialism when you're you know playing uh with with the price signals so much so uh, reaction there as well um and i wonder you know I, I assume that you're thinking you know bitcoin is a space where price discovery is happening unimpeded yeah, I think Bitcoin's probably one of the few places where we've still got price discovery going on. <laughs> and I suppose luckily it's because there are people that disagree with us, Brady. <laughs> and we should be happy that there are people that disagree with our views with regard to Bitcoin, because otherwise there'd be no one to sell it to us. And that would be unfortunate. 
I, I think the price discovery is like uh, being pushed out of most of the other markets uh, this year. And that's uh, unfortunate for the Austrian eco economist in the uh, space. Yeah. We're all nodding our heads at once. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michael, I wanted to ask you about, you know, the environment, running a corporation uh, in this environment. You know, you've been running MicroStrategy, founded it. I think you said it was you've been running it for 20 plus years, right? Maybe 30 years now. 30. 30 1989. We came public yeah. in 1998. So I've been public company CEO for 22 years. Okay. So you, oh. you've been through uh, quite a bit as the, you know, heading up a company. How has you know, the monetary policy of the United States and its evolution impacted your ability to run a corporation in this country? No, I, I think the primary uh, development of this year and the most interesting one is the, um, the onset of the virtual wave. And uh, by virtual wave, I mean the, the, the virtualization of a lot of products and a lot of processes uh, that uh, were previously delivered manually. So a lot of things we did, you know, the, the practice of meeting and face-to-face face -face with customers, the practice of, of, uh, of having a one-on-one -on -one meeting, the practice of events and travel and entertainment and, and the way that uh, customers view you changed dramatically between March 1st and uh, July 1st in the second quarter. And I would say when we started the second quarter, uh, I believe that people had to be working next to each other and we had to, and we had to uh, be face to face with a customer. And uh, we didn't really believe much in video, video conferencing techniques. And we really didn't, I'm not, when I say we, I mean my company in particular, every other company is a different stage on this journey. But we didn't, uh, we didn't fully appreciate the power of um, streaming on-demand video. And I would say by the end of the quarter, what we realized is uh, Zoom is magical technology. You can Zoom anywhere at the speed of light. You can bend time and space. If I can Zoom 6,000 miles away and then I punch the record button and then I can convince somebody that my software works, then I could just upload that uh, meeting to my website and let it run 97,000 times. And that causes you to think harder about wh why is it you're taking 40 meetings a week? Why don't you take 40 meetings a second? And, and uh, it, you change your view. Like I used to hire a person in Sydney, Australia to run consulting. And now you realize you can have somebody in Singapore running consulting in Sydney, Australia. And then you realize that one meeting a day isn't really appropriate. Why not seven meetings a day? And then you think, well, heck, what if I just have the person that had the meeting record themselves and have 700,000 meetings a day? And then you start thinking, you start thinking, well, maybe I'll just have the website do all this stuff. And so you have a complete collapse and dematerialization of hundreds of thousands of hours. You go, you go from, uh, you know, one person has a one hour meeting with a customer costs a thousand dollars and then they zoom there and it costs a hundred dollars and then they record it a hundred times and it costs a dollar and then it streams 10,000 times and it costs less than a penny. And then you start thinking, why is it that I need to have uh, a bunch of average people 
that are that are manually going through laborious processes, struggling to understand how things work. Why don't I just have the engineer that built the product explain how it works 187,000 times a week? And uh, that's kind of mind blowing. And that's the virtual wave. It's a it's a complete collapse, dematerialization of what you're doing. And you have to rethink everything about uh, a company once you understand that that's that's the new idea. How has well? How has the the monetary policy changes over the past thirty years affected the, your approach to the business? Obviously, it's led you to the, this point where you've converted your corporate treasury to Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think I don't think it changes the P and L. I mean, to be clear, like if you're in the business of selling pizzas or selling anything, <laughs> selling cars, you make cars, you sell cars. You make pizzas, you sell pizzas. You know. You make movies, you sell movies. The monetary policy is not changing the P&L. The monetary policy, you know, when, it, when you're printing 7% more money, I guess it changes your view toward the balance sheet. And so at 7% more money a year, then you conclude, well, the cost of capital is 7 or 8%. So if you're really smart, that means you have to buy your stock back or you have to leverage up or you have to invest in things that will have more than 7% a year in cash flow growth. So, so that the monetary policy drives your view as an investor on the balance sheet. It doesn't change the way you view daycare or the way you view a paint job, you know, <laughs> or any, any of those products and services. So I, I would say that, um, that the primary, uh, the primary impact of the, uh, the change in the monetary policy this year is we, we kind of went from a 7% expansion to a 15% expansion. And uh, it's kind of like we went from second gear to fourth gear and people that could afford to be oblivious and be, what is the word? Uh, be non ca cavalier is the word. You could be cavalier with your balance sheet with cash on it if you had 2% inflation or thought you did. And, and if you had 7% inflation, and if your company is growing 20% a year, like Google, you know, like Facebook, like Amazon, in, in that case, you can probably be cavalier with, your, with all the cash on your balance sheet too, because it's kind of like a small factor. But if you have, um, if you have a low growth company, if your company is growing less than 20% a year, if you're growing 5% a year, and if the if the asset inflation rate goes to 15% a year and if half of your half of your enterprise value is your balance sheet well then you get into an interesting conundrum right because then you realize you might very well lose more value on your balance sheet than you can generate from all the work you do on your P&L right and that puts you into a new situation and i would say that's that's part of the catalyst that got me here yeah yeah Danielle, uh, you know, just thinking about the way this monetary policy is affecting corporations, I'd love to hear you talk about this idea that you know, money printing is propping up companies, like Michael is saying, that aren't growing uh, and uh, that we call, we call them zombie companies. They're sort of walking dead. They should be in a capitalist society kind of cleared out uh, for, you know, making way for innovation and, and new entrepreneurs come in and fill the space in a better way. So can you talk about the impact of zombie companies on the economy uh, in the United States? So um, just on a macroeconomic level, having one in five U.S. companies not be able to cover their net interest expense with their incoming cash flow is 
problematic. And as you say, it's something that creates a long-term drag on productivity because you end up having an inability for new entrants, new innovators, new job creators to come in in the aftermath of the end of a credit cycle because the credit cycle is effectively not ending. You're keeping them alive. And we actually still have companies that we kept alive from the financial crisis. If you think about whatever Caesars used to be called and Clear Channel, what it's called today. And I mean, the examples go on and on. Coming into 2019, we already had 14% of, of U.S. corporations were zombies to begin with. So we've been dragging around this anvil, we've been dragging around this dead weight, which is why growth has been so anemic for the past decade or so. Pushing this envelope as far as we have, though, in the current environment, listening to what Michael is describing, because he's talking about massive levels of automation. I mean, magnitudes of automation, the likes of which we haven't seen. You have to bear in mind that one in 10 global employees in January 2020 was employed in travel and tourism. Talk to any CEO, including Michael, and they will tell you there's there's no reason that their former travel budget shouldn't go straight down to the bottom line going forward because the need to put the employee in, in business class travel and fly them halfway around the world and put them up in a five-star hotel for a week, it's negated effectively. And but but there are there are economic prices to pay for that in terms of long-term unemployment, not just in the United States, but globally and it's, it's good to look at things in a vacuum and it's good to be agnostic about how we approach investments, but there are definite economic prices to be paid on a societal level for fostering zombies, for not allowing new entrants to come in because you're going to end up having much too large of a proportion of your workforce who's out of work. And that is problematic. Yeah, uh, I can I can see why that's problematic. Uh, you know, Michael was talking about the dematerialization of of work. Um, you know, driven by exponential advancement in technology. And you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show that, or before we started recording, that uh, you know you spoke with Jeff Booth, and his right. book, The Price of Tomorrow, um, talks a lot about the deflationary forces of technology butting up against the inflationary policies uh, of the Fed and every other central bank around the world at this point. Uh, so how how do you see, you know, what we're talking about here, this uh, deflation in jobs powered by technology affecting the economy uh, and the dollar and currencies, et cetera? Well, so I, I think that the people who are, the, the markets right now have gotten ahead of themselves. The yield curve steepening is, it's premature. We still have to deal with the millions and millions of Americans and millions and millions of people worldwide who are out of work. Out of work is a simple way of saying, I don't have enough money to buy what I need to buy. So I need the government to help me. And it is that dynamic and the fact that there are going to be greater redundancies as technological, as, as we dematerialize, in, in to, to use Michael's term, there are going to be greater and greater numbers of redundancies such that we have to think about public spending that is going to be beneficial to the future. If you look at what they do in China, they throw tons of money into their economy. They have plenty of bad banks. They have plenty of bad debts. I don't deny any of it, but there is at least an, an, an IRR. There's a return on the investment of stimulus spending and it's such that they, they get infrastructure spending out of it. Germany's had a focus for generations on 
they've got the lowest youth unemployment rate in Europe because they've they're so focused on vocational training and reskilling their workforce. These are things that the the U.S. Uh, the U.S. economy, the U.S. politicians, they don't do. They certainly don't do enough of them. And private public partnerships. The last thing we want to have is is you know, from from what is being described, Bitcoin, a handful of technology companies, and gold, and gold falling off, and and um. And the technology companies falling off as well, just leaving Bitcoin in its wake. Because then, where do you live? Where do you, because the society that that leaves behind is devastating, and there has to be a solution such that we can start to ride up on. Again, I I mentioned that Huawei controls a, nearly a third of telecommunications equipment. That math doesn't work long term, and you you end up having one global dominant superpower, and. Those are the kinds of problematic issues that take us back to why I liked what Jeff Booth had to say, because it's peaceful in nature and then the nature of man. And I, 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 I don't think you can divorce one from the other. You have to talk about what's going to happen in an economy with extremely high joblessness and what the implications are. And I would prefer to see that that what government resources are printed, because if if, if we try and print our way completely out of this, we will go through a period of deflation. We will flip to stagflation and then we will wake up to the mother of inflation and it will go in that process. It will be a process, but we'll wake up to it if we try and do absolutely nothing more than than give handouts. And hopefully that's not the way we're headed because you're going to have a lot of Americans not living in America in the end. Uh, Michael, so. You know, we're facing this future of, uh, you know, increasing unemployment based on the technology, you know, technological advancements uh, and dematerialization of jobs. Um, we have this deflationary money that will, can complement those forces. Uh, what what is the Fed, do you think, is Fed going to do uh, in reaction, in, in effort to try to push this down the road as, you know, as much further as it can? One thing in particular I want to ask about is the idea of a Fed coin, right? A digital currency issued directly by the Fed and given directly to U.S. citizens in wallets controlled by the Fed. Um, do you see that as a way that uh, the Fed could sort of uh, in- increase its uh, monetary policy tools and, and reach? And, and it- I have no particular insight into the Fed, and politics are above my pay grade. So. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, then. <laughs> I'll defer on those. I'll, on give, those I'll pass that one over to Danielle, but I've got one for you. No more than me. I got, I'll pass that one back to Danielle, but I've got one for you. Uh, Square's press release when they bought $50 million worth of Bitcoin to add to their uh, reserve talked about the uh, empowerment that Bitcoin provides. And, and Danielle was talking about sort of the hum- humane aspects of money. Uh, and maybe like this money printing is sort of inhumane in a, in a sense. Uh, it's, it's unfair. It's stealing time, as Robert Breedlove might say, right? Um, what are your thoughts on that aspect of Bitcoin uh, for the future of, of humanity uh, as you know, the, the empowering aspects of it? I think that Jack said, referred to Bitcoin as an instrument for economic empowerment. And I agree with him. I think the same day I, I, I tweeted, I think there's 932 million people living in countries where the currencies are near collapse and uh, all of them don't have a stable currency 
that they can put their life savings in or their monetary energy in. So that's nearly a billion people on the planet. We talked about store of value. Store, store of value means store of, of, of mon- money, which means store of monetary energy, which means store of life energy, which means life force, right? So when we talk about store of value, we're talking about your life force, your blood. So it's a very basic human need to stay alive, right? To store your life's energy. And if you can't do it in a currency, then what are you going to do it in? And, and so you got a billion people in the world that are being driven to desperation. The, their, their oxygen has, is being sucked out of their blood uh, by the collapse of the currencies. And um, so are they going to actually store their life's energy in gold? I mean, the answer is no, they can't buy it. If they could buy it, they can't hold it. Someone's going to steal it from them. <clears throat> Try walking around with gold in your pants, you know, in, in most of these places. And uh, there's no supply. They can't get their hands on it. Are they going to put their life's energy into Apple stock? I mean, how many people in sub-Saharan Africa can buy Apple stock? How do you buy a house with Apple stock? <laughs> right? How do I leave a war zone with Apple stock? You know, like, so... I can't see that big tech is a store of value for those billion people. I can't see the precious metals are a very good store of value for them. I suppose it was the best idea, again, in the 19th century and maybe the 20th century. And if you took away Bitcoin, I guess I'd be, I'd be like trying to come up with gold, put them in my pockets and carry them around. I certainly wouldn't be, I, I don't know, I don't have any other ideas. So. So I think that Jack put his hand on an incredibly powerful concept when he referred to Bitcoin as an, instru- for, uh, an instrument for economic empowerment. And I think that it's really not understood by a lot of, a lot of non-Bitcoiners. They don't, they're not really thinking that someone that lives in a country that's currency has collapsed is about to lose everything and starve to death and be destitute in the absence of a solution. And uh, I don't think Google stock is the solution with all due respect, nor do I think is the spider, nor do I think government T-bills and 30 years and 10 year bonds are the solution, nor municipal debt, nor is a nice vineyard in California a solution, nor is a car in New York City a solution. Try to come up with a solution for the billion people that have a problem. And Bitcoin is a solution for them. And uh, I think that's pretty compelling. Yeah, um, listening to you talk about it is absolutely compelling. Uh, Danielle, before we jump back into that FedCoin question, because I, I want to hear your thoughts on that, can you comment on the uh, humanity of or the ethics of uh, of the Fed and this Cantillon effect, this top-down approach? Some, some call it a Ponzi scheme because the the people at the top, close to the money, get it at you know near zero or zero percent interest rates, and then it just goes all the way down. They charge more and more interest as the money gets disseminated, and and I would I would argue that that also happens on an international level with the United States benefiting from having the reserve currency. Uh, can you talk about the ethics of of the Federal Reserve and monetary policy they present? Well, I think that that right now the Federal Reserve has provided uh, Congress with a reason to take away its second mandate. Its second mandate is maximizing employment. Its first mandate is minimizing inflation, which they've actually stated that they want to double every 50 years, uh, which is just asinine. But their second mandate is, is, is maximizing employment and 
by their constantly going to Congress and saying, you've got to, you've got to spend money. You've got to pass legislation. We need a couple of trillion dollars of fresh treasuries. We need more product out there for us to buy and thereby grow our balance sheet. The Fed has effectively said we have failed on our second mandate. We do not have a transmission mechanism by which we can get liquidity that is created directly to the people who need it the most, the people who need the jobs, the people who are being fired. What the Fed can do is get it to the largest corporations and help enable share buybacks, which decreases the number of shares that are out there, which increases earnings per share to the tune of 40, 50% over the last decade. That's great for the people who run the companies. Their bonuses are based on earnings per share. And it's been great for people like Apple. Apple's like whatever, a fifth of all share buybacks since, since buybacks have come down as much as they have. So it, it's fine for financial engineering. But the, the but the Fed's second mandate of maximizing employment doesn't do anything to get to the people who need it most. In fact, it makes the in, in income inequality divide, which we've seen play out in riots in the streets of America, that much worse. And you know, to, to hear Fed officials outright deny that quantitative easing increases the inequality divide. It, it's it literally is. I mean, I have to have a box of Kleenex sitting by. I don't ever know whether to laugh or cry because they're lying and they know that they're lying and they know that there is no such thing as a wealth effect, except for it makes those who have the wealth feel better and spend more. But sure as hell doesn't trickle down to the people who need it the most. So you know, it's I, I'm I'm the most conservative person I know. But when you allow the American dream to die on the vine and when you ensure that the rich are the only ones who get richer, then somebody should stop you and say, hey, you know what? Your policies are destructive to the future of the sovereignty of the United States of America. Maybe we should sit back, reopen the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 and move a few things around because you're actually making the problem worse than what it was to begin with. So I think we're there. Here, here. Um, what, first, what do you think the prospects of that actually happening are? And second, um, if, if obviously, if that's not uh, the prospects are not good for that to happen. And the Fed does uh, create some kind of Fed coin. What kind of monetary policy does that direct relationship with uh, United States citizens uh, allow for the Fed? Well, I think Congress is going to wake up and smell the coffee if, you know, it, right now, modern monetary theory dictates that we can spend a kingdom come, print it all, and that, insurance, that, that, that inflation is never, ever going to be around. And that if it is, we can just raise income tax rates and call it a day. That's not how things work in the real world. I think Congress gets... Get, I think Congress revisits how blurred the lines have become between Treasury and the Federal Reserve, right? There should be a dark line between the two. And yet what happened on March the 23rd, 2020, is that the Federal Reserve was able to set up Enron Worldcon type, Worldcon type of off-balance sheet structures on the Treasury's balance sheet in order to buy corporate bonds, high-yield ETFs. All of these things are in direct violation of the Federal Reserve Act unless you monkey with accounting tricks and maneuvers and set up these SPV, special purpose vehicles on the treasury's balance sheet. I think that all of this comes into question when we see inflation, because that's when your typical Joe Q, Jane Q politician is going to start caring about the Federal Reserve. Until then, the Federal Reserve is just going to keep lining the pockets of the lobbyists who pay them. And it's, it is, if, I mean, if we were supposed to have drained the swamp four years ago, God knows we've just added toxic sludge to it. So nothing's been changed. But I think that there will be scrutiny and a revisiting of the 1951 Treasury Federal Reserve Accord, which separated the two after the Fed capped 
interest rates throughout World War II to finance war, war, spent, war spending. I think that we will see a reseverance become become incumbent upon Congress once you see the Fed saying, oh, my gosh, inflation's too low, inflation's too low, inflation's too low. When one day they print so much, you flip a switch and inflation's so high, that 2% target is so far in the rearview mirror, they can't see it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Daniel, thank you so much for your analysis. Uh, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. I really appreciate your perspectives and the fire that you bring and the passion that you bring for getting this message out there. Uh, obviously, we Bitcoiners are dedicated to getting this message out there as well. Um, so can you let us know about Quill Intelligence? Tell people where to find uh, your analysis and kind of keep up with what's your, uh, what you're thinking. Uh, sure. Uh, just visit my website, quillintelligence.com. I was never popular when I was inside the Fed because all the research that I produced had no agenda to it. It wasn't based on somebody's old PhD thesis. Uh, so visit me at Quill Intelligence. We publish daily. We have an institutional product for uh, money managers, family offices, what have you. Uh, we publish weekly as well. So just come see samples of the research. And if you're bored, follow me on Twitter at Demartino Booth. Love to have you. All right. Thanks so much, I Danielle. Follow, I followed Michael too. So, and then Michael followed me. So that's it. That's nice. my follow, follow du jour. Awesome. Uh, well, Michael puts out some fire Bitcoin poetry. So I enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. We're going to bring in uh, Swan Thunder Corey Clipston and just nerd out on some Bitcoin with Michael before he takes off. Uh, Corey, you ready to pop in? I'm here. All right. Uh, Welcome. This is uh, this is Corey Clipson. For those of you who don't know, he is the Swan uh, founder and CEO. Uh, Michael, thanks for sticking around with us for a little, uh, you know, Bitcoin session jam session here. Uh, Corey, you wanna you wanna take it away and ask, and ask your ask your question? Yeah, sure. So uh, we've got you as the first shoe to drop. Thanks for uh, your contribution to uh, to the world of Bitcoin. And then we had Jack, who was uh, possibly uh, spurred on by you. And then uh, this morning, you know, it, it's a little bit of a different category because it's not necessarily an operating business, but we saw the uh, NYDIG, um, I think it's Digital Investment Group, um, announced that they put $100 million worth of Bitcoin on their balance sheet, uh, which I thought was another really interesting development, um, especially given that this is actually the group that was rumored over the summer uh, to be selling by far the highest volume of uh, out-of-the-money calls and then shorting the absolute crap out of Bitcoin with leverage whenever it tried to punch through like 12, 12, 5. So we've been talking about this in our own channels for the last few months and just kind of like wondering when they would say, okay, that risk is not worth taking anymore and flip long. I, my suspicion is that it's exactly what happened uh, over the past week or so. I, I tweeted out last week that I thought they probably went neutral or net long. And then uh, now the announcement comes out this morning, you know, which I think is just them essentially trying to juice the position that they've already put on, which is going super long. And I, it's not just it's not just the the hundred million on the balance sheet. They've also got, you know, a few billion dollars, you know, one or two billion dollars in this fund that they put positions on with. So I don't know, man. I think uh, I think you've started something here, Michael. So thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I'll say for the record, uh, it was pretty clear that something got started long before I came along. <laughs> quite quite clear. Uh, and uh, I I think that Satoshi and, and the early advocates, you know, how Fenny and the like, they started a fire in cyberspace. And uh, I think it was a small one. 
and I think it, I think there was a massive civil war in 2017 that was fought by a bunch of Bitcoin maximalists and uh, the rest, you know, along with a lot of other struggles and, and fireworks. And I think most of the world wasn't really understanding nor paying attention, but I think the success of Bitcoin was assured, I mean, first by the founders, because otherwise it'd be nothing. And then by the, the maximalist who won that war and, you know, when they got to the hard forks and uh, by the time 2020 came along, uh, it was pretty clear that the fire was raging. Bitcoin was the winning digital monetary system. And uh, I, I feel fortunate that I kind of had 2020 hindsight. I, mean, I had the benefit of everybody doing all the work and all of the, all of the bricks were in place. I just had the problem, right? I, ha I was motivated by getting kicked in the back of the head by this pandemic, you know, and currency crisis. And so I had to discover for myself, but, but, uh, I, I think that, um, what you're seeing is a lot of other people that are just rational actors that are waking up in 2020 and, uh, that, they're not the heroes. They're not the visionaries. It's, it's visionary when, you know, when you're sitting around and Hal Finney's writing his notes in 2010, that's visionary. And when in 2017 or 2016, you're going through a hard fork with Bitcoin Cash and SV, that's terrifying, you're like fight to the bitter death. And at that point, had that fight been lost, right? None of us are here. At yep. this point, this is I, what I say to people a lot is it doesn't seem that hard to me. You see, you see one company or sorry, you see one one network, Bitcoin, with 93 or 94% hash rate dominance in the proof-of-work networks, everybody else's 2% or 1% of that, it's not a terribly different, uh, a terribly dif difficult uh, conclusion to come to or analysis to come to. I think people just have to shake themselves out of their uh, standard behavioral patterns and move into something new and different. When you were falling down the rabbit hole, you know, we talk, we ask Bitcoiners about this all the time on our podcasts and that, share the experience, the visceral experience of it. I'd love to hear you talk about the moments that you realized, you, you know, what exactly was going on here. Uh, just the experience you, did, you had as a person uh, when you were falling down the rabbit hole. I can't say there's any one particular moment. Uh, I think... Uh, it's hard to put my finger on any one moment. I wouldn't say. I just. I think there's so many uh, good pieces of content and, and so many good materials that have been created by such a wide range of, of Bitcoiners that each one of them is part of the mosaic that causes you to come to a conclusion. So, so I don't have a strong opinion on that. By the way, I do have a strong opinion on something else we talked about, which is inflation, and I, and my my observations. I don't think we're ever going to see inflation. Like, I mean, there's, a, there's, again, this macroeconomic talk about when will inflation come? Well, I mean, from what I can see, the core inflation metrics in, in Europe and in the United States, they both exclude energy and food. So if the EU can calculate an inflation metric without energy and food, and if the U.S. calculates inflation metrics without energy and food, 
Well, because they say they're highly volatile, which I think that means is because they go up in price. But in, in what universe that you expect to live in, do you expect to be able to live without food and without energy? And so if, if, the, if the metric excludes food and energy, and if it also excludes every asset, every luxury asset, and it excludes annuities and excludes bonds and excludes stocks and includes excludes dividends and excludes everything scarce and rare and excludes all of the all of the labor intensive activities and all high end services and every and every highly desirable painting you ever saw or sculpture and if what's left right <laughs> like i i think that the i think that the government agencies will just continually redefine the market basket of elements to include streaming videos and manufactured um, low variable cost items, and there will never be any inflation. D does anybody really think that streaming YouTube videos are ever going to go up no matter how much the Fed prints? <laughs> no, it's a good point. Like it won't happen. People keep waiting for the hyperinflation. There won't be a hyperinflation, right? Oh, if yeah. you want hyperinflation, the hyperinflation is a million dollar bond that costs $10 million today, which means you've got 22% inflation on an annuity for the last every year for a decade. And so if every macro, every macro economist ignored 22% inflation and the single most important thing in the world for a decade running, why would you think that they're going to discover 2% inflation sometime in the next 10 years? And by, by, yeah. let me let me say the different way. A bond that yields fifty thousand dollars a year is a lifetime annuity, right? It is a retirement. It is an early retirement. It used to cost a million dollars to retire early, never work again in your life, and now it costs ten million dollars. So, therefore, the single most important thing in the world, in my opinion, would be. I mean, wouldn't it be to live comfortably forever without working? I mean. Don't you think that if you took a boat and you said, what does everybody want? And the answer is, I'd like to retire comfortably with full security for the rest of my life and never have to work again and never have to worry about it. That's what my father got after 30 years in the Air Force or, or 40 years in, the, in government service. You get a pension, right? You get a, a retirement benefit. So the single most important thing to go into a consumer basket would be would be an annuity or uh, or a comfortable retirement, and that's the one thing that is hyperinflating. I mean, if you think that twenty two percent inflation is hyper, and no one's discovered it yet because no one's looking there, so I don't think they're ever going to find it. And I think it's kind of silly to, to to say that. Well, wait and see what happens when the Fed finally gets hyperinflation because they won't. You know, a flip side of, of the yield on these bonds going to the floor is now there's this opportunity for companies to take extremely cheap debt onto their balance sheet and essentially, you know, pull off the best carry trade in the history of humanity. Uh, I was just talking with um, management of a private company, a large uh, Asian private company that has a big operating business, and they've been doing this already. So they are... Uh, you know, they have loaded up on cheap, you know, one-ish percent debt or two percent debt and bought a ton of Bitcoin on the quiet. But, uh, you know, it's not that surprising. Why wouldn't you? 
Well, you know, like uh, it, it's been a classic in the currency market. It used to be that when the yen had a very low interest rate, people would fund in yen and they would use it to buy dollars because there's a two and a half percent spread. And, uh, you know, the only issue is just do you think the yen is going to strengthen or weakness, weaken, right? And so if, um, if Bitcoin is just another currency, then in fact, you've, you've got the ability potentially to fund in euros or fund in dollars or fund in yen and carry it in Bitcoin. And you're right. I mean, you know, the, the equivalent for, <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. I said, I said, Bob, why don't you mortgage your house and buy Bitcoin with it? <laughs> like, like the <laughs> obvious thing to do is put a, is refinance your real estate at very low interest rate, you can refinance less than 3% by Bitcoin and, and you could get something. If you think you're going to get more than 3% on Bitcoin and you're going to pay less than 3% on your house, then you're basically funding in dollars and investing in Bitcoin. And there are they're interesting ideas. They all just come down to matters of um, conviction and wherewithal. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, you, you've hinted at it, right? At some point, it just becomes a rational thing. And then, you know, you've had to take the jump by building extreme levels of conviction and then making sure that all of the interests around you were aligned and had, you know, approaching your level of conviction to pull it off. But at some point, it just becomes the right trade. And some people already recognize that. Like, I, I mean, I have a lot of friends, you know, from the finance and trading worlds that have, you know, even long ago just made that asymmetric bet. You know, I've got a friend with a few thousand Bitcoins, uh, you know, who still thinks that MySpace, it might be MySpace and Facebook might be around the corner, but he's made the bet just because the the risk reward is so asymmetric. Um, so it's, it's a, that when that really starts to take off as well, they just start to fuel each other because it, it just starts to confirm the people with conviction that they were right. And then the traders see the gains and, you know, it just fuels itself. Yeah. I think with regard to portfolio theory, it, if I have a um, hundred million dollars and I put 33 million of it in the gold and I put 33 million of it into big tech and I put 33 million in, into Bitcoin, right? If, if you think that Bitcoin is going to move with the expansion of the monetary supply, and if you plug in a number, let's say you plugged in 15%, if you th and, and this is where it gets real. If you thought the monetary supply was going to expand at 15%, well, you know Bitcoin's scarce, which means that you're looking at a 15% advantage or 15% real yield there if nothing else changes, right? If there, the, the other drivers of Bitcoin would be adoption, uh, technical utility, productivity of the people in the network, et cetera. But, but throw those out and just focus upon just the relationship between the monetary supply that it's trading in and say it inflates at 15%. Now go to technology stocks or go to any stock. If the stock is based upon or predicated upon revenues which drive cash flows in a given currency, if the revenues are growing 3%, and the cash flows are growing 3% and the monetary supply is expanding 15%, you've got a minus 12% yield. You have to actually be invested in a company that's growing its cash flows north of 15% to be flat. And of course, most of the S&P and most equities aren't going to be growing more than 15%. You know, then, so there are two conditions then. I got to find a company that's growing its cash flows north of 15% and I have to buy it at a fair price. 
And if I buy it, if I miss on either of those two, right, that's a problem for equities. For gold, you know, you've got the you've got a minus three percent or a three percent dilution or debasement from mining and rehypothecation and all and the counterparty risk. You would rationally you would say you ought to put in a two to three or two to four percent a year load on that. So now you start to look at your entire portfolio and you say, are you really going to put 1% of your portfolio into Bitcoin at plus 15 and 99% into stocks at minus five or minus 10? Because I think the, uh, no one expects cash flows to grow that much this year, right? No, I, I uh, so I listened to your Peter McCormick interview this morning, uh, looking forward to parts of you dropping. Um, you talked about how you're going to, you've decided to fund a Bitcoin developer, which I think is awesome. Uh, and I, I hope happens more as, you know, companies, corporations and bigger investors get some skin in the game and they can pick up the tab for a developer or two to just focus on Bitcoin 100%. Uh, wondering if you have thought yet about uh, going into mining, either personally or through the company, you know, running some of those cyber hornets yourself. You know, I, I think with with all of these things, especially when you're a public company, you have to like rationally and prudently do all of your diligence and do your research and become educated on uh, the economics and the options and the legal and regulatory issues, and then the, and then the, the capital risk issues. And after you've cycled through all that, you can come to a conclusion. You know, with regard to you know, supporting Bitcoin and Bitcoin development. Right now, I'm going through um, a, an educational process where I'm educating myself and the company is getting educated on, on everybody in the space, everything that's being done, everything that needs to be done, how we can support it and how we should best move forward. And, and uh, I'm really excited about that. I mean, I, ha I have inclinations, but uh, I'm, it's early in my education there and the company's education. So, so we have to absorb more. I think with regard to mining, I think it's the same thing. We just have to absorb more and, uh, and understand all the dynamics. Uh, and I, I don't have any other thoughts on that. What about thoughts on in your studies on Bitcoin mining and energy usage? Has that been a concern for you? Um, am I concerned about the use of energy in Bitcoin mining? No, actually, I I've referred to, I, I feel like Bitcoin is protected by a wall of encrypted energy. And the, more, the fact that there's a lot of energy involved, I think is a good thing. It creates security to the network. Um, if we had 12 servers with 12 stakes of some random coin on them, and we were trusting those 12 servers to protect uh, $200 billion, I would think that's much riskier. <laughs> I think uh, I'm not really interested in, in finding quick, elegant, cheap shortcuts to protecting all the money in the world. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's, it's kind of a silly notion to be concerned about the use of energy and Bitcoin mining. Uh, as I said before, it's, first of all, it's coming at a, off, off the marginal points of the grid. The only places people are doing Bitcoin mining are places where there's there's power that's in excess that that has uh, where the highest marginal utility of the power is Bitcoin mining. 
if human beings were willing to pay more, then they would price the Bitcoin miners out of the market. And so every place where we need electricity or we need energy for either factories or human, human welfare, the price is high enough that Bitcoin miners are driven away from that. Bitcoin miners go to the end of the earth, to the end of the, the grid, and they're using energy that would have otherwise been wasted. It's either wasted hydroelectric energy or, for example, uh, natural gas uh, wells that are about to be closed in, and they either have to close them in or flare them. And, uh, and they can set up Bitcoin mining rigs there. So I think they're, they're recycling marginal energy in order to create a digital monetary system that's capable of holding all the money on Earth. And so what's wrong with that idea? You know, I, I, I can't figure that out. It seems totally rational to me. And compare, what's the cost of protecting all the money on the Earth if we don't do it this way? Yeah, I mean, it's incalculable. Uh, we can't know for sure. You can make rough guesses, but it's a lot. You know? I think it is a good deal by comparison, for sure. I mean, it's got to be more efficient. Uh, yeah, I, th I think, I mean, there are critics and skeptics of Bitcoin, and sometimes they'll throw the energy thing in your face. But again, I, I think it's a silly notion. Uh, and then there are skeptics... Um, there's, you know, there's the quantum computer argument, you know, people keep talking about, well, what if they come up with a quantum computer? And I think it, it's kind of like, well, and, and of what if a human being comes up with the unstoppable weapon and what if he uses it against us in particular? Well, if you really invent a quantum computer, 99.9% .9 of the money is somewhere else. And why don't you just take over a country or stop the human race in its track or steal anything you want from anybody, any which way you want to do it with your quantum computer, because you could in theory. So, so uh, as a practical matter, what's more likely to happen, it seems as computing power is going to get more powerful and computers are get more powerful. And the people that have the biggest vested interest in harnessing computer power are going to be Bitcoin miners and they're going to upgrade their mining rigs with whatever advances we have in computer power in order to make the network more secure and to the benefit of Bitcoin. And uh, I just, I think, you know, it's somebody, somebody thinks, oh, I invented genie and the genie can cast a magic spell and I'm really worried they're going to attack Bitcoin with it. Well, if I have a genie that can bend space and time, I think they might do other things with it too. There's a lot more stuff to do with, infinite godlike power than attack 0.01% of the world. Yeah. And we've got really smart people working on, you know, quantum resistant cryptography already. So uh, it's, it's being, it's being worked on and thought about. Hey, Michael, we, uh, we have a really close friend of the company and, and a lot of us personally, uh, Robert Breedlove, who's based here in, in SoCal where some of us are, and uh, obviously is becoming quite the, uh, the Bitcoin philosopher uh, we understand you've recently spent quite a bit of time with him. I just wanted to get, you know, some thoughts and reflections on, on kicking I around. I Robert's awesome. Yeah. And I love his work. And uh, I think he's uh, consciousness expanding. He's really, he's gotten people to stretch their minds in lots of different dimensions. And I, and I think that's wonderful. I think Robert's uh, one of one of the great intellectual leaders in the Bitcoin space. And he's one of the, one of the people that makes it a joy to, to be in this um, in this industry.
Expanding that on that a little bit, have you seen any sort of commonalities about people that have found Bitcoin and gone down the rabbit hole and come out the other side, both as far as what type of people come into it and then also maybe what Bitcoin does to them, you know, in, in terms of, you know, being members of society or being sort of professionals or whatever it is. What, what is a Bitcoiner, I guess I'm asking? <laughs> I, I would say there's a consortium of, of free thinkers, libertarians, intellectuals, good economists, by the way. I, <laughs> people, would say, people would say Austrian economists, but I would just say good economists, right? Because it seems like there's so much bad economic thinking, right? So thoughtful, thoughtful economists, thoughtful scientists, right? There's a lot of ideas in Bitcoin that that are that are simply um, things that you learn in thermodynamics, right? Closed system thermodynamics, or, or mechanical systems, or engineering. You ever design an airplane, or or a, a ship, or um, or an, you know a heat exchanger, right? I mean concepts like adiabatic lapse and and um, and isolated systems and conservation of mass and energy all of those things pop up so great scientists great philosophers great thinkers great economists great technologists people that love software people that uh people believe in liberty right people that believe in math and truth and integrity i mean there's all of those things you know it reminds me of that um, what is the t-shirt where it just says because math, <laughs> you know, because math, right? So, uh, yeah, I went, you know, when I, when I was at MIT, it reminds me of my freshman year at MIT and uh, freshman year. And probably it's the same at a lot of schools, uh, you know, Hal Finney went to Caltech, right? I bet it was the same at Caltech too. And I bet it's the same in a lot of, a lot of great universities, but you show up for your hometown and you were the smart kid in your hometown and you were kind of the nerd or the valedictorian. And you were the person that like read, read deep books and talked about ideas and, and people looked at you and they're like, but you know, you don't play soccer. You're going to homecoming and uh, you know, say that again, I'll kick your ass. Right. And then you go <laughs> off to college and you get to college and I got to MIT and, and it was like, everybody was valedictorian. And yeah. ev everybody had perfect scores in the SATs and they were all the smartest person in their town. And then they started talking like, Oh my God, these people have so many interesting ideas. <laughs> like they've been everywhere. They thought about everything. You know, one of my roommates built robots, you know, for fun. And my other roommate designed a, designed a, a video game competing with Pac-Man and got a, cease and desist letter from Atari for stealing all of the revenue. So he thought it was kind of funny to like, to, to, to launch his own uh, pirate video games. And another one had, had started his own. One of them was Pete Diamandis. He started the International Space University, you know, and, and they were all change the worlders or, or the other guy be like, come and come, we're going gliding. What, what do you mean? No, yeah, we're going to flying. What? Or the next one, like, we're going to do space shuttle stuff or, one of my fraternity brothers, for fun, he went and he hacked all the elevators at MIT. So if you punch the third floor, you went to the roof. And if you punch the roof, you went to the basement. And, you know, the other one figured out back in the day when phone calls cost you a lot of money, 
they figured out how to hack the phone system and and uh he called his girlfriend in, in malaysia for free for like a year and and eventually got busted for $48,000 worth of phone bills. Phone freaking. I didn't think we'd talk about phone freaking today. <laughs> just interesting people. And, and you got there and you're like, these are just my kind of people. You know, they're just my kind of people. You know, they're inventing stuff. They're inventing Project Athena came out of MIT, you know, and they're inventing Kerberos. You know, I remember they came into my my fraternity and they knocked holes in all our walls and they wired it for Ethernet back in 1985. And we were getting our own workstations. And there was just a sense that, you know, the world was going to change and we're going to use our brains to make it a better place. And, and that's what I see with Bitcoin. A lot of people thinking for themselves, using technology and math to do good things for the yeah. world. So I love this. So obviously we're aware of the people that you've talked to, you know, on camera or on podcasts. Uh, are there any of the, the scientists in Bitcoin or the, the hardcore coders that you've gotten the chance to talk to the, you know, the Adam backs of the world or people that have been around kicking around and, you know, contributing to core. I'm starting to make my way through Bitcoin core and the Bitcoin development community. And I'm, and I'm, I'm going down that rabbit hole if you will and learn yeah. about how they do what they do and uh, and what their priorities are and, and i'm looking forward to that i'm enjoying that a lot yeah i can imagine the way you're talking about being able to scratch that itch on the tech side it's got to be a big part of this for you um so we've we've had a little uh a little game we've been playing about the uh the famga companies in which one is most likely to uh put Bitcoin on their balance sheet first. Uh, so <laughs> Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, you know, which one do you think would, uh, would go first and why, uh, you know, we'll put pressure on them the way you did Jack. <laughs> <laughs> that was the cyber Hornets giving him a, a constructive nudge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, what is it? What is the word? Oh, you know, a, a cheerful nudge. You know, it, it could be anybody. I mean, I mean, there are arguments to be made in favor of Microsoft, and I've read those. And then, and then I've heard other theories that Facebook is a logical one because of uh, because of their mission of uh, of inclusiveness for the world. I think I think um, when um, when we came out with our announcement, right, and we said we said. Uh, Bitcoin is a is a, a fine treasury reserve asset for a publicly traded company, right? We kind of opened up some space for another publicly traded company to put it on its balance sheet. And then when Jack came out with his announcement, he said, this is an instrument of economic empowerment. And I think that that is just as important, if not more important, in creating and creating some uh, a halo and air cover and a precedent for the next company. So you got to ask the question, what's the next big tech company that would like to be a proponent of economic empowerment for the world? So, yeah, we're finding out very quickly. Obviously, Bitcoiners are very fond of making memes and uh, understand the power of memes. And we talk about the great money meme wars of the 2020s. Uh, you've already become such a uh, 
uh, you're, well, you're a meme yourself, which is pretty fun, but <laughs> you've also been the source of some great fodder uh, for <laughs> memes. Like the turn of phrase is really, really important. Um, I was just actually listening quickly to, uh, it sounded like you had a new list of four in a category, something that started with an A that you were ticking off on Peter's show. Do you remember what that was? Uh, yeah, I'm not quite I'll sure. I'll have to go back and listen to it again. Yeah, it's okay. I, I said a, a lot of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was, it was it was a nice it was a nice new framework. We'll we'll go grab it and tweet it out. Um, but uh, yeah, I was hoping it was something new you were coming up with. But um, yeah, the Cyber I, I Hornets is great. To, I referred to an arc of encrypted energy to escape the flood. That was one of my my latest metaphors that I think is apropos for people that that have no other way out and i i think it aligns well with uh jack dorsey's phrase instrument of economic empowerment yeah he said it very his words were very eloquent right eloquent and elegant and i think they um struck a chord with a lot of people and at the end of the day you got to decide if you're not not going to do this because you think it's the rational investment strategy, why don't you do this because it's good for the world and there's a billion people that have no choice or have no, have no hope otherwise, and there's five billion people that will benefit by the support of Bitcoin as an instrument for economic empowerment. There was, there's been a, um, when people have pressed me and said like, well, let's not try to make the price go up too high so we can stack more sats for ourselves or whatever. To me, I always go back to just one thing that Andreas Antonopoulos said, you know, five or six years ago on one of his videos, which I'm sure you watched, which was basically if, if Bitcoin adoption spreads fast enough that we can head off one incident of hyperinflation in any country in the world and save the people of whatever that nation is from going through that, you know, you actually have a moral obligation to spread Bitcoin adoption as fast as you possibly can. It's something that we certainly feel very, you know, acutely at Swan. It's why we're doing what we're doing. We're trying to make it happen as fast as possible, trying to get to 10 million, you know, sort of hardcore Bitcoiners in the U.S. Uh, as fast as we can. Do you feel, uh, it sounds like you do empathize with that at least, but do you actually feel a bit of a moral obligation to make it happen or try to make it happen? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I talked on um, McCormick's show about my experience in Argentina, and mm -hmm. and I, I have operations in Argentina, in Brazil, I have in Mexico, I have operations in South Africa, uh, and I'm, I, I have uh, business in Turkey. So we we have business in places where the currencies have dramatically weakened, and. I, I had the experience in 2010 or so of watching 90% of our wealth in Argentina evaporate overnight, like literally overnight, just ripped from our hands and there's nothing we can do about it. And it was a, it was a pretty painful experience then for me, even though it was not even 1% of our enterprise value. So... So at the end of the day, it was it was it was like getting poked in the arm really really hard, or maybe breaking your arm. Like it's enough that you remember the pain, but it wasn't debilitating for the company. But I try to imagine what it would be like. Yeah, 
What the tra- what a chart. That's that's yeah. I was just thinking about the first time I went to Turkey in 2010. I think it was like 1.5, and it's creeping up on eight right now, and clearly on the way to ten. Now imagine what you would, what would be like if you had all of your life savings in Argentina and you lost ninety percent of them overnight. Okay, and and yeah. at that point there was no Bitcoin, and so it was truly hopeless. I mean, honestly. If there was no Bitcoin and you're in one of those countries, it's hopeless. I, I had that, you know, I have that funny story with Peter. I said, look, they came into my office in 2019 or so, and they said, it's happening again in Argentina. I said, can you buy some gold? No. Can you buy a yacht and sail it to the Caribbean? And my lawyers looked at me like I had gone nuts. I, and the, and the, the finance people they're, they're, they try. They try to figure out how. How do we tell the CEO that he's out of his mind? And I'm like, I. I wasn't thinking Bitcoin. All I was thinking was, we're about to lose another couple million dollars or something. Buy a boat, put it in the water. It's already in the water. Sail it north. And I. And is some politician going to reach out from heaven above and take 95 percent of my boat? I mean. So, and we're, and they go, well, you know, we can't do that. And so a world without Bitcoin is literally hopeless. Like for those people, like for, you know, you've got your hundred years life savings, everything your family's ever done, all your hopes, your aspirations, and you're about to lose it. You know, it's some snarky comment, you know, like, oh yeah, why don't you buy some stocks with it? You're not buying NASDAQ stocks with it when you can't, you don't have a stock market, right? You can't get the capital out of the country. You're not buying gold with it. You can't get it out of the country. I've lived that. And I I lived that as a global multinational. And I had a hundred X the resources that anybody that lived in those countries has. And so Bitcoin really represents hope. And I'm, I'm aware that if you don't have a functioning exchange in the country, then you still run into a problem. So I'm pretty su- supportive of that. I kind of feel like if, as Bitcoin is more successful, the exchanges are more successful. We want to see people like Binance and, and all the other exchanges be successful so that they make money, so that they have capital, so that they go and they set up subsidiaries in all these countries so that they can ha- allow people to exchange their property and their assets and their fiat in every place on earth. For uh, for Bitcoin that will hold its tangible value, you know, in the face of of volatility and adversity. I agree 100% with you about Bitcoin, you know, providing hope in the world. Uh, And especially like I can't really even uh, imagine, you know, not living in my first world U.S., you know, kind of privileged, uh, you know, view of things. Uh, I was still pretty hopeless about things. I kind of resigned to like, you know. I'm just going to, you know, live my life with my family and we're going to, you know, basically live uh, without hope for, you know, uh, a better monetary existence and, uh, pri- you know, even right to privacy and privacy issues. You know, Bitcoin's really provided some hope on that front as well. Um, so do you think at this point that Bitcoin is inevitable and what it, does a Bitcoin future look like to you if you could sum it up? Well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll say this, right? Nothing is for certain on this earth. Nothing is inevitable. And that's why we have to get up every single day and do our jobs. 
right? You guys have to get up every day and you have to do your job. I have to do my job. Every Bitcoiner has to do their job. We need the miners to do their job. The developers have to do their job. And, and you know, on the day when everybody in the Bitcoin community thinks it's inevitable, we're done and we're assured, we're probably no better than all the politicians and central bankers that we criticize, right? So <clears throat> I think that um, in nature, everything is at its finest when tomorrow is uncertain, right? Every creature gets up in the morning and tomorrow is uncertain. And yet having said all that, it's, it's most beautiful when everything is struggling in order to maximize, maximize its potential. So I, I think that the future looks good for Bitcoin, and I think that it will succeed, but I think it will succeed because nobody in the Bitcoin community takes it for granted, and everybody gets up every single day and gives it their finest. Love it. Love it. I think that's a perfect segue into our video uh, celebrating um, our, our new Bitcoin philosopher on the scene and uh, the poetry you've been dropping. We, uh, we gathered up some of your, uh, you know, your, your clips, uh, your tweets, and our creative director, uh, Brecky, uh, put it into an awesome video. So we'll roll it right now. Uh, sorry if we embarrass you just a little bit, but uh, we, wanted you to, we wanted to share it with you. First, I have a mega, mega, mega problem. And the mega problem is I have a lot of cash and I'm watching it melt away. Under a good year for the past decade, the monetary supply expands by 7 to 8%. That's my battery draining by 8% a year. That's a good year. And this is not a good year for us, right? This is a year where you can make the argument that the battery is going to drain 25%. What is the point of all this? What, what am I doing wrong? And of course, the answer is you can't hold cash. And so we bought $425 million. Bitcoin is the best security and the most liquid security invented in the history of the world. This is already one, right? It's one. It's been tested. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of counterparties can trade and trust each other with real-time certainty that uh, collateral has not been double-pledged, rehypothecated, and there's no fraud. It's digital gold. It's at least a hundred times better than gold. I think it's probably thousands of times better than gold. Bitcoin is the first perfected digital monetary network in the history of the world. It's never been done before. It's dominating everything that competes with it. There's no reason to believe it won't be 10 times bigger than 100 times bigger than 1,000 times bigger. The dominant player is going to take everything. Who are these, who are these, who are these people that's selling this to me? <laughs> and I feel sorry for them. What are you going to buy that's better than what you're selling to me? I just pity them. I don't want to hear that you've got a new idea and you're upset over transaction fees and you would like to implement smart contracts and you're going to change everything. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that you're going to defend the network to the death against someone that's going to break it or compromise it in any way, shape, or form. What I want is to see a bunch of Bitcoiners that will lay down in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square, fight to the bitter death against every well-intentioned engineer that wants to tinker with the thing. You have to defend the network to the death. It's a beautiful thing, probably the most beautiful achievement in the history of the world. We've invented something extraordinary. Don't F with the network. I. 
I'll say for the record, I think you guys at Swan are the funnest group of podcasters and you seem to enjoy <laughs> your job or and or your life and Bitcoin more than anybody else I've actually seen podcasting. So <laughs> yeah, I think that's a cool thing. I, I did see the video somewhat embarrassed because I, you know, again, the real hero, the real heroes somewhere, the debate between Satoshi and the early Bitcoiners like Hal Finney, and then everybody that fought that battle in 2017. And those, those are the guys that really struggled. I'm a Johnny come lately, but I'm happy to be part of the team and I will do my part as much as I possibly can. Uh, and I'm, I'm coachable <laughs> and, and so you guys keep coaching me and uh, keep me on the straight and narrow and, uh, and we'll all play our position and, and try to do the right thing for Bitcoin. Because as I said, it's, it's a bunch of cyber hornets. I just want to be one of the hornets. <laughs> well, Brecky, he did see the video. So, there you we'll, go. we'll just we'll just post the link in the comments for everybody. Sure, it's creative. I give you that. <laughs> excellent, excellent. If you're not having fun with Bitcoin, you know, what are you, what are you doing? You gotta have. I'll make fun. I'll make one point for you guys, which I I think is really the strength of Bitcoin, um, and and this is the strength of 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 the cyber hornets and the entire swarm, which and decentralization. If I hired a hundred people in marketing. And I gave them three months and told them to come up with some good marketing for Bitcoin. They would work with each other. They would come up with a thousand ideas. They would put 10 in front of the executives. 82 would get knocked down by the lawyers. They would come up with something which is one one hundredth as good as what you've done. It would cost a million times more money and nobody would pay attention to it. It's an organic distributed marketing team, uh, and it is fantastic. Uh, just it, it is a you know Twitter really is like this uh, uh, you know a crucible uh, for the best ideas, the best ways to present ideas, and 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 the memes that will you know go mainstream. Uh, uh, hopefully, and and really teach people three word phrases. What the hell's going on here? You know. So yeah, this is exciting. Michael, this is going to sound uh, cryptic, but it's actually extremely important for our company's strategy. Um, if you are going to be an animal cartoon character, what um, what animal would you be? You already know what animal I want to be. Okay. He's the cyber hornet. Cyber hornet. That's what we thought. So we just wanted to make sure. Look, with, with, all, with all due respect, I think there are a lot of brilliant metaphors moving through the entire Bitcoin community, but I don't want to be a mushroom and I don't want to be a fungus. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, I don't I know if you knew, but actually Brandon Quidham runs communications for Swan. So we actually yeah. write all of our emails and <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's brilliant. And yeah. And I read it. Okay. Yeah. And I get okay. it. Okay, and I right. and I agree with it, right? It's just a question of like, what do I want on my T-shirt? <laughs> right, cyber horn, <laughs> cyber horn it is. Done. Okay, all right. all right. Thank you, right. guys. Thank you, Michael. This was a ton of fun. I really appreciate it, man. Uh, we'll just drop it right there. Uh, don't forget Swan Daily Buys, SwanBitcoin.com/slash Daily Buys. It's rolling out now. 
get hyped every single day. You can buy automatically. Just, you know, hang out on Twitter, make up memes. Let us buy the Bitcoin for you. Thanks, everybody. On behalf of the Swan team, thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Swan Signal podcast. It's fun to join us live on the YouTube broadcasts. You can find them at youtube.com slash swansignal. Head over there, subscribe, turn on the notifications, and join us when you can. We have a lot of fun in the live chat, and we often work in some questions from listeners. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys.